You are perhaps familiar with that phrase, that expression that serves as the title for this particular sermon, a rose among thorns. As Americans, we love our figures of speech, our idioms, so to speak. And in fact, that's one of the things when someone is coming from a foreign country to America, they have to get over. That's the, the big hurdle in learning English, not just all of the ways in which we love to spell words umpteen different ways. It's also the fact that we love our figures of speech. And this one being a good one, a rose among thorns or a rose between two thorns. Maybe you've heard of it before. It's sort of a polite way to point out how someone who possesses both either beauty or virtue or perhaps both is somehow caught between a group of people or two or more who have neither. And I think this turn of phrase is often used as sort of a half-joking, half-sort of serious compliment for when a young woman is, is sort of caught in the midst of a group of rowdy young men. And in fact, I can remember very distinctly being told this on multiple occasions as me and my brother posed for photos with our, our younger sister. Oh, look at that. There's a rose between two thorns. <laughs> Interestingly, though, I... The, the history of this phrase, if you're into history or whether, it stretches all the way back into the 4th century by an ancient Roman historian by the name of Marcellinus, who uh, coined the phrase as sort of a, a philosophizing way to sort of point out how beauty can exist or coexist in very harsh or adverse circumstances or environments. And all of that to say, at any rate... This is a particularly apt title for this chapter. A rose between two thorns is a very good way to summarize all of 1 Samuel chapter 25, as you'll hopefully see in a minute. This chapter is a really riveting story. I love the narrative. I love how it's laid out for us. I love all of the little details that are included. It's a story that's not all very sort of description driven. It's very sort of conversation driven. It's a, a narrative that unfolds right before our very eyes and it keeps everything sort of in tension. And I think one of the ways and one of the reasons why I think this story is so fascinating is sort of the high regard, the high sort of position it gives to the female character named Abigail. She is indeed the central character of the story. We didn't read about her in the scripture reading, but she is the main story. She is the main character of the story. And in terms of storytelling, sort of flanking Abigail are two characters. One, of course, is you're very familiar with King David. You know him. He's, you know, five smooth stones. He kills Goliath and, and all that kind of good stuff. And He's the one, the promised king of Israel. At this particular juncture, it'll, we'll, we'll explain this a little bit later. He's on the rung from King Saul, of course, as you know. Saul has become supremely jealous of David to the point where he's tried to throw a spear at him on multiple occasions, causing David to flee into the Judean countryside for his very life. And this episode, this particular uh, event sort of occurs as David was a fugitive of his own throne. The other character, so we have David, you know David, you have the other character, his name is Nabal. He is the husband of Abigail, and just we're not going to bury the lead. He is not a good guy. 
Not an upstanding dude in the slightest. And look at how he's introduced to us. Notice verse number two. It says, And there was a man in, uh, excuse me, in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal. And the name of his wife Abigail, the woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. It's interesting how he's introduced to us, is it not? He's described as this rich man. He, he, we're told all of the things that he has, all, all of his great assets, all of his great possessions, but he's also described as this harsh man, a cruel man, a vicious man, a materialistic man. I think it's very telling, in fact. That the historian here is choosing to describe Nabal not by his person, but by his property. That's the first thing we learn about him. We learn about what he owns. Which I think is very telling of his character. His identity, we could say, is wrapped up in his stuff, in his position, in his power, in society, whatever extent that may have looked like in that particular region. He was a very profitable businessman, a tycoon, you could say, of the sheep shearing industry. And so he's a man of great wealth, of great prominence, of great status, perhaps even great influence. But really all the things that he really cares about, we've just learned about. He only cares about his stuff. He only cares about what he owns. And again, you might have caught it. Compare how Nabal was just introduced to us. This man of great wealth. And compare that with Abigail. Verse 3 again, notice. Now the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife, Abigail. Notice, the woman was discerning and beautiful. But the man was harsh and badly behaved. The husband, he's an intense man, an obstinate man. And yet the the wife is insightful. She's understanding. She's graceful. Uh, Nabal is introduced by what he had, what he owned, what he possessed. And Abigail is introduced by such a stark contrast by who she was. We're given her character. She's a discerning, understanding person who possesses great beauty and great grace. And she is very insightful. We're given a a clear sort of contrast between these two individuals. How they made a happy married couple, we do not know. Maybe it wasn't a happy marriage. But regardless, we have to focus on Abigail. She is the hero of the story. She is, as one person put it, the master of the situation. All the way through. And as we'll see, what she does to sort of solve the tension of the story, I think reveals one of the most powerful, one of the most amazing truths in all of the Bible. To situate ourselves again, notice verse number one of this chapter. It says, now Samuel died and all Israel assembled and mourned for him and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now, again, remember, David is on the run. He's being pursued hotly by King Saul and his men all across the countryside of Judea. And now he's made his way to the southern portion into the wilderness or the desert of Paran, which is sort of near the Sinai Peninsula. 
30 miles-ish, roughly, oddly, approximately, south of Jerusalem. He's fleeing, sort of making his way, trekking further south. And this just so happens to be where that vile businessman, Nabal, has set up his shepherding businesses. And David hears about this, as we read earlier. He hears about the fact that Nabal is getting ready to celebrate the time of sheep shearing. So David, uh, using this as an opportunity to get his men some supplies, so to speak, sends ten of his men out to deliver this message. Go to the the CEO of of Nabal and company, sheep shearing, whatever, and go ask for some provisions. Go ask for some rations. Notice again, verse 4, we'll read it. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house. I hear that you have shearers, and your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. David is being very polite Being very cordial, he's talking with his businessman, peace, I mean you no harm. He mentions peace over and over again in the very, in in the introduction to this message. And then he politely is just asking, can we have a little bit off of your table? Which should be nothing for Nabal. And not just because he's so wealthy, but the time of sheep shearing, if you know anything about ancient history, had become sort of like a festival of sorts. This was a time of, of great celebration around springtime. They would, they would shear all of the sheep that, we, that they would have and they, they would celebrate together. It was sort of a time that was accompanied by great uh, feasting and drinking and partying. It was a, a festival for days on end. So this request for Nabal is not to go to some sort of empty pantry and make do and give us out of your scant supply. No, he's asking Nabal to give us something off of your table of abundance, so to speak. And what David is asking for is, of course, even not even... Out of the order. He's not out of left field. He's not just sort of making up this request out of nowhere. As he suggests in verse number 7. That his men have been with Nabal's shepherds in those wilderness areas. And his men, David's men, have taken it upon themselves to sort of act as protectors, as guards to Nabal's shepherds. Allowing that business to... Carry on without any sort of infringement, no sort of interruption, no uh, sort of enemy marauders, no, uh, no animals taking out whole herds of sheep, nothing, not, none of that. Because David's men have taken it upon themselves to act as protectors. So what David is asking for is simply some common decency. To be shown in return for how they have sacrificed themselves for the good of Nabal's prophets. And this is when we get the first true glimpse at how vindictive, how nasty the man Nabal could be. Notice verse 9. 
So he sends this request. When David's young men came, they said all of this to Nabal. They deliver the message in the name of David. So it has David's seal of approval, his authority. You have my word, all of that kind of stuff. And then they waited. They're waiting for a response. And Nabal answered David's servants, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? You understand, his response is just the epitome of disrespect. Not only does he just flatly deny David's request with all of that repetition of my stuff. You want me to give out of my stuff to your guys? I don't think so. But also, more than that, did you notice he he proceeded to just totally insult David right almost to his very face. Insulting he and his men, he's insulting David's pedigree by sort of half implying that he very, how do I know who you are? You could very well be one of the other slaves that are running away, which is preposterous. Again, remember when this is coming. Everyone in Israel knows who David is. He's the anointed king who's on the run from King Saul. Everyone knows that King Saul is hunting a dude named David, son of Jesse. He knows who this guy is. He knows that this guy is not only the one who is the anointed next king of Israel. And that's why Saul is so furious and wants to get rid of him. He knows who David is. So then we can just say Nabal's just being nasty to be nasty. He's just being vile to be vile. Because that's sort of who he is. That's who this man is. He is a vile, vindictive, not very nice guy. And this, all it does, making fun of David's men, making fun of David himself, calling him a slave, making fun of his heritage. You don't think that gets David a little bit riled up? Yeah, it does. Verse 12. So David's young men, they turned away and they came back and they told him all this. And David said to his men, his first response, every man get your sword on. Every man strapped on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up after David. (laughs) Those were fighting words for David. Those words, he was not going to put up with that. So he gets ready for action. He hears this report, and his first response, okay, get your swords, we're going out. They start gearing up for battle. And they're going to settle, David is going to settle this thing in his way. It's, and I think it's very telling. It's very telling. Keep this in the back of your mind. David's first impulse to being wronged, to being presented with an opportunity to take sort of vengeance, he snatches it. He's like, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to retaliate. Yep, that's what I'm going to do. There's no mistaking what's going to go down here. 400 men armed to the gills, ready and marching out to get back at someone who's just denigrated them, disparaged them. It's going to be a massacre. And in fact, David says that. Look at verse 21. He confesses this. Now David had said, surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, this, this bud, all that he has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he's returned me evil for good. 
Now notice what he says. God, do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. His intent is made very clear. David says it from his own mouth. I'm going to go out there, and I'm going to wipe them all out. If that's how you want to play this, Nabal. So they're, they're gearing up for battle. It's going to be a massacre. It's going to be a bloody mess. Because this guy didn't want to offer anything from off of his table. Now this guy, David, is like, I don't think so. Now we have this tension brewing. (laughs) And while all that is going on, one, God bless him, one of Nabal's servants sort of sneaks away. And he finally, finally brings Abigail up to speed on what's been going on. Notice verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that no one, can, that one cannot speak to him. I wonder what inspired this servant to, to sort of slink away, get away from the brewing tension. Maybe Nabal is up parting and he doesn't have any idea of what's going on, what David is planning. And he hears about it. He hears about something is brewing. And he sneaks away. And I think, I think my estimation is he wants some reason, some rational, level-headed response to sort of fill this situation. This whole scene is desperate for some wisdom. So he goes to who? The wife who was wise. (laughs) The wife who was discerning and able to have insight on how to handle these situations. And the servant tells her everything. How David had made this very simple request of just some food off of his table to help his men stay nourished. And how Nabal had just flatly responded by like a raving lunatic for no apparent reason. They were good to us. They were protecting us. They were a wall to us. That's how virtuous these men were. They weren't stealing anything from us. The servant is laying out all the facts. At the end, he suggests, Abigail, please, please consider a better course of action here. Please consider some better way to handle this. Because your husband, he's a worthless, no good louse. And he will not listen to anyone. That's essentially her words. And I think it's very telling that she doesn't disagree with him. She doesn't say, how dare you talk about my husband that way. She just kind of moves on. And in fact, later, we're going to see, she actually uses the same words to describe her husband, which I think is interesting. But Nabal has already shown himself to be the definition of a fool because he's not listening to anyone who has an ounce of reason. And Abigail, after hearing what's going on, though, she immediately springs into action. There's going to be a massacre. It's it's not going to be good. (laughs) 
It's going to be just a violent, bloody mess. So watch what she does. She immediately springs into making preparations. Notice then Abigail, verse 18, made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of, of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to our young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. She knows that this is a time-sensitive matter. This, the clock is ticking. David and his guys, they're gearing up to go wipe out all of Nabal's men and Nabal himself. So what does she do? She starts preparing more than enough stuff to feed David and his men. And I think that's the point. Or one of the points. Is where Nabal was acting miserly with what he had. Abigail is going above and beyond to give back to David himself. She's going out of her way to do this. Down to where he was in order to shed some much needed wisdom into this whole foolish episode. And that's when we get to the heart of this whole story. One of the most beautiful speeches ever uttered in all of scripture comes from Abigail right here. Notice verse 23. She's going down with all of this food and supplies and rations and provisions and she's meeting David. David comes out to meet her and notice what she does. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. She's calling herself David's servant, a place of humility she is now putting herself in. Let not, she continues, my Lord, meaning David, regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord, as Yahweh lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord, Yahweh, has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord, be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord David is fighting the battles of the Lord Yahweh, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life. The life of my Lord David shall be found in the bundle of the living care of the Lord your God, Yahweh. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord Yahweh has done to my Lord David according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord David shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause. Or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord Yahweh has dealt well with my Lord David, then remember your servant. What remarkable words. 
She bows herself to the ground, this place of humiliation and deference. And she speaks words that are brimming with remarkable, pure grace. She makes no excuses for her husband. She makes no excuses for what he has done. In fact, she uses a clever play on words to admit that Nabal has lived up to his name. Nabal in Hebrew literally means fool. So essentially what she's saying here is Nabal has Nabaled this whole thing by refusing to attend to the needs of your needy men. He's Nabaled the whole thing. Nabal is his name and and folly is his game, is essentially what she says. Even though she was unaware of it, Abigail chooses to assume her husband's foolishness and guilt as her own. Did you notice that? Amazing part of this. Notice again verse 24. How she begins. How does she begin with this? She doesn't begin by trying to explain away her husband. She doesn't begin by trying to say, well, you got to understand my husband. And he's this. What does she say? On me alone be the guilt. She is taking the blame for what her husband has done. Essentially, we could summarize it. Blame me, David. And she's pleading with David, this guy who has her life and the life of everyone that she belongs to in the balance. And she goes to him and pleads for him to forgive her for this offensive situation. Notice again verse 28 where she says, please forgive the trespass of your servant, me. Please forgive me for all of this wrongdoing, for all of these faults. I'm taking responsibility, she says, for this whole debacle, this whole stupid misunderstanding. And on top of that, did you catch how she has proceeded to remind David, the future king of Israel, who he was? Notice again verse 28 where she says, For the Lord will certainly make my Lord, meaning David, a sure house. Because you, David, you are fighting the battles of Yahweh, of Jehovah, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. Whatever she knew. Whatever insight or knowledge that she had, she knew, Abigail knew that David was anointed by Samuel and therefore by God. And she reminds him that your life is bound in the bundle, wonderful phrase, the bundle of the living care of the Lord God, Jehovah. He's the one who has you. He's the one who is watching over you. So therefore, throughout this whole thing, the voice of wisdom, the voice of reason is Abigail. As she's evidencing this just uncanny wisdom and trust in the providence of God. Did you catch that in verse 26? Remember when she says, now then, my Lord David, as Jehovah lives and as your soul lives, because Jehovah has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to you be as Nabal. She is saying God has been in this whole thing. He is the one who has prevented you from taking action so far, and he is the reason why I'm here before you talking to you. 
It's God and his providence that is, that is here uh, sort of uh, dealing with all of the timing of this whole thing. She's not there by accident. This is not just a chance encounter with Nabal's wife. This is something that God has providentially ordained. As, he, as she has just suggested to restrain, to prevent David from taking action with his own hand. She reminds him, you're the future king of Israel. You don't need to take the justice in your own hands by brandishing your own sword. Again, she reminds him to trust in the provision and the promise of Jehovah. Notice verse 30 again. I love how she says this. Notice the certainty that she has. She says, and when, when Jehovah has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause for grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with you, Remember your servant. When? It's a certainty. It's something that she is so assured of. It's going to happen. Because this is how God works. She has this implicit understanding. That Jehovah God is going to work this out. Imagine. Imagine David's look of horror and shock. As this... Wife of Nabal comes and speaks words, perhaps the least likely words that he could ever have imagined to hear. And they resonate greatly with David. They resonate with him so much so that he too, he too sees Abigail's encounter with him. Not as just something accidental, not as chance, but as a gift of God's providence and grace. Notice verse 32. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. He knows, he sees, she was sent by God To insert some gracious wisdom and restraint into this foolish scene. It was the Lord who sent her. And as a result it prevented David from acting like a fool. Because you see that's what's at stake. What's at stake here isn't just Nabal living up to his name. It's also David, the the future king of Israel. The man after God's own heart from making a Nabal of himself. By trying to take his own, uh, by trying to take action towards his own vengeance, by taking the life of Nabal in his own hands. His hand was on the hilt of his sword. That's the image we have to see. David was ready. He was ready to take some lives because of what was told to him. He was ready to retaliate to how he was so impugned. His honor was so spat upon. And yet, what does God do? God interjects himself through the person of Abigail to interrupt this revenge tour of David by sending her at just the right time. 
At the exact right time, Abigail is here speaking these words, which brings some level-headedness to this whole thing. David relents. He stops. He pauses the gearing up for battle, and his men put down their weapons, and Abigail goes home. She goes back to her house, and she finds her husband Nabal still acting like a Nabal. Look at verse 36. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold... He was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. He's not a king, but he's feasting like one. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning. He's completely oblivious to the fact that his own wife, and due to her quick wittedness, due to her quick thinking, his head is still on his shoulders. But he's completely oblivious to all of that. He's living it up. He's carousing. He's slamming home some beers or whatever he's drinking. He's partying. He is having a time. And she, wisely enough, decides not to tell a drunk Nabal what she had done. Instead, she decides to tell a hungover Nabal what she has done. Look at verse 37. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him. And he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. His reaction says it all. Nabal's does. Some say this is sort of metaphorical. Just a little insight here. Some say this is metaphorical so that when he learned about the extravagant gift that, that Abigail had given to David, that his heart died, that he sunk into a deep depression Others say that when he learned that information that he got a stroke and that he went into a coma and then he died. But either way, the point is the same. Nabal was overcome with grief. I think about two things. Both the, the fact that his wife had undermined his show of authority to this David guy. But also the fact that she had taken such an extravagant prodigal gift out of his stockpile of assets and reserves. And in the end, what occurs? Nabal just leaves the story much like one of his own possessions. He's wasting away and expiring. The one who refused to give anything, what happens? Ends up losing everything. And the story has a very fairy tale ending. David acts very quickly. He acts very quickly in, in Abigail's widowhood. And he snatches her up as his wife. So what's the takeaway? That's how the story ends. She becomes the wife of David. And, uh, and what's the takeaway? What are we to, to, to draw from this story of almost revenge? And I think that's a good application because in one sense we can understand this story through the eyes of David. Because it's no accident that this story of almost retaliation, revenge on the verge of happening, is sandwiched between two chapters of just pure mercy. In chapter 24, David has the opportunity to take Saul's life, and he doesn't. Chapter 26, he has the opportunity to take Saul's life again, and he doesn't. Two chapters full of the opportunity to retaliate this guy who's tried to pin him against the wall with a spear, and he doesn't. And yet in between them, we have the story where the whole time, what is David doing? I'm going to get you back for what you said to me. How do we get from those two different Davids? 
I think very clearly, I think David, we see in him and in his life, not only is he a flawed human being like us, he's a man after God's own heart, chosen by God, yes, but also he's a sinner in need of much grace and yes, of much patience and learning. And I think here, right in the middle, we can see what's going on. In those moments of big trial and ordeal, he evidences a big faith. And yet in those moments, it's just Nabal, it's nobody. It's not as big of a deal his guard is not up as much. And he's quicker to want to retaliate, to take his own sort of salvation in his own hands. He's drawing the sword of his own justice. And leave it to the fact that he needs the wisdom of Abigail to calm him down. To, in effect, humanize and humiliate him. And in fact, that's what's occurring in this whole thing. The humiliation and humanization, we could say, of David. I think it's a beautiful reminder, this whole story, of how God's grace to us often looks like restraint. In fact, five times in this chapter, verses 26, 33, 34, and 39, uh, over and over again, it talks about this idea that God has restrained or restrained David or kept him back from doing something foolish, from doing something like Nabal would. There are times when God mercifully prevents us from doing something. And this is grace too. Sometimes God's hand of grace looks like a hand of restraint, a hand of preventing you from doing something. In your mind, it's right. It is justified. This is is justified wrath for David. This is justified vengeance. He is right in his own mind. And yet, God's grace to him says, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop you from doing that. Sometimes I think that's what happens in our own lives. We have moments when we are right in our own minds, we are right in our own actions, and yet sometimes God's grace looks like a hand of prevention. But I think the truest sense of this whole story, I think, is revealed, again, when we focus on the hinge of this whole story, the words and actions of Abigail. Because I think we should step back and just marvel at the wisdom and the grace that she displays. She is truly a a rose among thorns. The the thorn of Nabal, the thorn of David. She, right in the middle of all of that, evidences such grace. She responds to her husband's foolishness and railing, his braiding of David's men for no reason. And she responds to David and his foolish haste to take his own actions with his own hands. She responds to both sets of foolishness with a word of substitution. Did you notice that? She takes Nabal's guilt as her own. And she secures her husband's pardon by putting her own life on the line. I am at fault. Please blame me. Forgive me for this trespass. In order to what? Make reconciliation for this this story of foolishness. In the end, because of Abigail, the wrath justified, though it may be, is disarmed. By what? An intervening word of grace that comes at just the right time. And yeah, this is exactly how it works in the gospel too. 
Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. When the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. This is the gospel, the good news in a nutshell, that at the exact right time, God intervened through his son, Jesus Christ, for a bunch of good-for-nothing sinners and nabals like you and me. By sending his son, the incarnation of wisdom and grace to take all of our foolishness and all of our guilt and all of our sin on himself. So indeed, we can be bold to say that Jesus is the true and better Abigail who comes into a world full, filled, populated by foolish, selfish sinners. And he takes the blame for the whole thing. Blame me. The the trespass is mine. The fault is mine. That's what Jesus is saying when he dies for you on the cross. Blame me. On me alone, let the guilt of this whole foolishness, this whole uh, sort of whole thing, blame me. Even though Jesus, just in a way, like Abigail, didn't know about this whole thing. She didn't know about her, her husband's foolish words and about the fact that David had sent this in such a polite way. She didn't know about any of that. And she took it on herself. And yet, what do we remember in the gospel? That the one who knew no sin willingly becomes sin for us so that in him we might be made the righteousness of God. This is the gospel on display right in front of us. We are all Nabals. (laughs) That's us in this story. We're all playing the fool, self-absorbed by our own sin. And all the while, what has occurred? God, through his own son, has taken it upon himself to shoulder all of our wrongdoing, all of our wretchedness, all of our depravity, all of our foolish words and actions, all of our rebellion, all of our sin. He has taken all of that on himself and he has paid for it with himself through the sacrifice of himself. This is what God in Christ has done for each and every single one of us. He goes before the Father and pleads the case of every sinner, of every Every neighbor and says, forgive them by putting the punishment on me. He puts to rest all of the wrath that exists between you and the Father by bearing that wrath himself. And in so doing, your forgiveness is purchased with his own blood at his own expense. It is Jesus. We must say then, who is the ultimate rose among thorns. The rose of Sharon, as it says in the Song of Solomon. Who interrupts this world full of violence and hatred and retaliation. 
This world full of vile sinners. And he interrupts this world as the expression, the ultimate embodiment of grace that says, blame me. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Because they're a bunch of Nabals. <laughs> My friends, this is what the gospel shows us, reveals to us, tells us. This is what the announcement of the good news is. That you have been cleared of your guilt and your sin. Not because of you. Not because of your actions. Not because of anything you have ever done or said or thought. Nothing has ever come out of you or from you that has resulted in God favoring you. Your favor before God has been purchased because of someone else. Because of Jesus. He has inserted himself into a scene full of foolishness and sin and said, On me be the guilt for this whole ordeal. And in Jesus we have been pardoned, my friends. Did you know that he did this for you? Did you know that all of this glorifies the Father, but it's also for you? Do you know this Jesus in this way? Do you realize, don't go into eternity like a Nabal, unaware, totally oblivious to the work of his own wife, to his own mediator that had worked out his pardon. Don't go into eternity not knowing the fact that your sin has already been paid for by Christ himself. My friend, this morning is the opportunity for faith in that. Unlike Nabal, turn and look to your Savior and say, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. That's what this whole scene, I think, is inviting us to do. To put our trust in the one who has bought our pardon at his own expense. The rose among the thorns. Let us pray.